From interviews and investing to careers and credit, we've got you covered. WalletWatch is a podcast brought to you by MSU Federal Credit Union and OU Credit Union. We'll be interviewing industry experts, sharing personal stories, and even playing some fun games. Delivering financial topics in an enjoyable and interesting way. I'm one of your hosts, Jessica. And I'm Amanda. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, Wallet Watch listeners. We are so excited to share this episode with you and introduce a very special guest. So I'm going to hand it over to Amanda and let her introduce our guest today. Thank you, Jess. So like Jess said, we are very excited. We have Lindsay Bryan Podvin. She, her, is a biracial financial therapist, podcast host, speaker, and author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. In her therapy practice, Mind Money Balance, she uses shame-free financial therapy to help people get their minds and money in balance. She's a proud alum of Michigan State University and did her master's degree at the University of Michigan. She lives with her partner and their dog on the traditional land of the Fox, Peoria, Potawatomi, and Anishinaabewake peoples known as Michigan. And we also have some fun non-work facts to share about Lindsay. She is a popcorn connoisseur, oldest child in a large family, dog lover, travel hacker, Anagram 8, Scorpio rising, Virgo sun, Pisces moon, Bravo enthusiast, and Dorsey. Thank you, Lindsay, for joining us today. Oh my gosh, that was a fun intro, and I love that you read all the fun facts. I thought maybe you'd <laughs> sprinkle in one or two, but now I feel like your guests will really kind of get, get to know me behind the scenes a little bit more. I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here. And for the listeners, we're recording in person. And before we recorded, I told the hostess, like, you guys, this is like the first time I've left my house in two years. This is a big deal. I'm very excited. We are so glad that you've given us the opportunity to come in today and that we are your first outing. I think that's exciting. Yes. Yes. So our season has been around this theme of intentional living, family finance, and health. We wanted to have an episode talking about emotions and money and how they are intertwined and tied together. And so when we are researching out who could we bring in to WaltWatch for this topic, we found that there is such thing as financial therapists. We really didn't know that that existed. So if you want to tell us a little bit about what it was like to become Michigan's first financial therapist and your journey into that career. Yeah, so I'll I'll probably start and kind of work my way back. So I got my certification in financial social work in 2018. But before that, as you mentioned in my intro, I'm an MSU alum and I graduated straight into the Great Recession. Like many millennial listeners can probably relate to that feeling. And I got a job right away. So I graduated right before the economy crashed, where you could kind of get a job doing anything. I had a major in sociology, and I got a job in marketing two days after graduation. Had never taken a marketing class, had no idea what I was doing. But it was like, if you had a degree and you had a connection, you could get a job. And I found out that I didn't really like marketing, but I was more or less insulated from the recession because I was employed. And so I'd heard that the economy crashed, but it didn't really click for me that it had crashed until the marketing company had extended my contract. And I said, no, 
And in my head, I was like, whatever, I'll find a job. This took two seconds. It's not a big deal. Well, haha, we all know how that ended. I said no to that job and ended up working where I love at the peanut barrel for all of my Sparty alums, <laughs> came back here to East Lansing and worked for a year and a half, two years as I figured out next steps. And like a lot of my peers, we were searching for work and the kind of go-to if you couldn't find work was, I guess I'll go back and get a master's degree and then hopefully by the time I'm done, I'll have additional qualifications and hopefully the economy will start bouncing back. So I knew I had an interest in mental health. I knew I had an interest in people because I had studied sociology. And I was like, you know what? Social work seems to kind of be a blend of the two. I can do one-on-one work. I can be in the community. I can do mental health care work. And so I went to the University of Michigan to specialize in interpersonal practice and mental health. So for People who go to therapy and you see an MSW behind somebody's name, it's likely that they specialized in mental health or in clinical practice. Um, And so, you know, got my first job with my MSW, got my first paycheck, and I was earning less than I did as a waitress. And it was this eye-opening realization of what am I going to do here? How am I going to make ends meet? And I had so much emotion tied up to it. Um, I come from relative financial privilege where my parents paid for my school. And so when I graduated without debt, I had so much embarrassment and shame that I had wasted my parents' money, that, you know, I had kind of squandered my financial privilege. What was I going to do? But I was kind of being told literally and figuratively, like, you got to take what you can get. And so I got really sick. I developed chronic insomnia. I have a history of depression and anxiety, and that came back roaring with a vengeance. And I was physically getting sick because if you're not sleeping and your mental health isn't great, like you're just at risk of so many colds and flus. And so I started learning about money because I had to. I was like, I have to make ends meet. I guess I'm going to cut my avocado toast. I'm gonna, <laughs> not that I was eating much avocado toast, but I was, I was cutting my grocery spending. I was, you know, trying to be really mindful about every penny that went out. But really what made the difference was getting a new job and having a higher income. And as soon as I did that, all of the personal finance books that I'd read actually really started to make a difference because for folks listening who are struggling to make ends meet, you can only clip so many coupons. You can only cut your spending so much. You also have to advocate for better pay. So in doing that, my health bounced back, my mental health improved. And in my sessions, I specialized in in helping people with depression and anxiety. Money stuff came up. Mm -hmm. And I was told, you are not to talk to people about money. Like, that's not your lane. That's not your job. And I just felt like it was a huge, huge missed opportunity because I was speaking to clients about their well-being. And when money came up, I was told to kind of refer them out to somebody else who could help them with their credit score or with debt or to hit pause on their utility payments. Um, and I just didn't like that. I was like, ah, I feel like if they're bringing it to me, I can ethically help them. It, it doesn't mean I have to extend information to them about investing, but I feel like I should be able to talk to them about the basics of personal finance. And from there, I sought out training in financial therapy and in financial social work. And as they say, the rest is history. It's a really, really good blend for me of mental health and wellness and also personal finance information. Wow, that is incredible. <laughs> I, I love your story. I'm sitting here, I'm like, wow, that's, it's, it's so inspiring, right? It's figuring out what's going to work. Mm-hmm. How do you make a career out of a passion that you have? And so thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. with us. We're, we're so excited. 
Yes, definitely. Um, so while you were kind of sharing your story, you did touch on some of the emotions that you kind of felt when you were navigating early on in your career and changing careers. What other emotions have you seen come up for other individuals when they are talking about money and things that they're maybe emotions they might be struggling with that is tied to their finances? Yeah. So, I mean, emotions and finances are really intertwined, as you mentioned at the start of this episode, and and people can experience all sorts of emotions. In my practice, because I specialize in financial anxiety, I see a lot of emotions that look or sound like anxiety, shame, embarrassment, guilt. Um, And then that can, when you have those feelings, it impacts your relationship with money and your personal finances because you can want to be perfectionistic and want to do things the right way with your money, or you can become really avoidant and procrastinate looking at your money because it can be so emotionally overwhelming. So anybody can experience any range of emotions with money, but definitely what I see in my practice is, is shame, embarrassment, anxiety, worry, a lot of those things. And it's not always because of a lack of money or struggling to make ends meet, though that can be it. There's just also a lot of guilt and shame around it, as you two know, as personal finance educators, we really aren't taught this information. And so a lot of my clients are millennials or people just a bit younger than millennials or just a bit older than millennials. And so they'll often say to me like, I just don't get how everybody else knows what to do and I don't. And I'm like, well, nobody knows what to do. You're in really good company, but because we don't talk about money, people feel really isolated and really alone. I love how you put that because sometimes I will say that, especially if I'm going in and talking to the younger generation, they seem like, oh, I don't need to pay attention to this. But I say, I'm here to talk about money because no one else does. Mm. And then you're supposed to know what to do with it, right? No, it's so true. I mean, I think back, I didn't learn anything from my parents. It was kind of like, this is an adult conversation, stay out of it about money. And I think now as a parent myself, I'm like, was it because my parents were still trying to figure it out and they Mm. didn't know how to teach it to us? And then you do get, you know, small bits in school, but it's not like the nuts and bolts, like working. So previously, uh, before I taught financial education, I worked in a branch and seeing that people didn't know how to write a check. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't know how to balance their account. I mean, just simple things make you really passionate about wanting to be able to help mm-hmm. people. Can you provide for our listeners a good definition for what financial anxiety is? Yeah. So, First, I like to just define traditional anxiety, and then we'll layer on the finance piece. So anxiety is a normal emotion that all humans experience, even though if and when you experience it, it doesn't feel very normal. I can assure you it's a normal feeling. And anxiety shows up in three places. It shows up in your thoughts and in your feelings and in your behaviors. And it usually feels like being on edge, being worried, having racing thoughts. Um, Physically, it can feel like your heart's racing, like your palms are sweaty. You might feel a little bit dizzy or short of breath. And then the thoughts that come along with anxiety tend to be really fast paced. I'm worried I don't know enough when we're thinking about money. What if I make a mistake? What if what if I say something stupid? There's a lot of those types of fears and worries. So when we layer on financial anxiety to traditional anxiety, it's kind of the same thing. It's feeling worried, anxious, or on edge in relationship to your money. And it can be short term where you feel really anxious. We're recording this right now during tax season. So 
feeling really anxious about making sure that you do your taxes right, but then after you fill out your tax paperwork and send it in, hopefully the sensations of anxiety go down. That that heart rate kind of reduces to a normal speed. Your breath kind of returns to a normal cadence. Where it becomes problematic is if that anxiety is lasting outside of the financial interaction. So think about maybe opening up a 401k or a 403b at work and you're really anxious and worried and nervous about it. You talk to your your retirement rep, you open it up, you start funding the account, and then the, the spiraling thoughts continue. What if I make a mistake? What if I don't save enough? What if I don't invest enough? What if I lose it? What if I do it the wrong way? And that feeling persists after that financial interaction, that may be cause for concern. And when I say cause for concern, I just mean it may be worth looking into. Thank you for that. And I think I have personal experience with that as well. I'm sure everyone does at points in their life, but, you know, being a college student, thinking about the FAFSA and having to fill that out and yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I know money was a huge stress for me, uh, especially when I had my son. I was a single mom. Mm. And so it was like every financial decision I had to make, you know, went with stress and anxiety and money and That's why I I giggle when I hear people say, oh, money and emotions aren't tied together. And I'm like, oh, but they so are. They so are. And I think so many people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. They don't realize even just even in small mannerisms or decisions that they make or things that they do, it's it's emotional. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And those emotions, when it comes to to draw a parallel between traditional anxiety and financial anxiety. It's not that traditional anxiety can't be impactful, but let's say we're talking about something like social anxiety. You're worried about going to a party because you're worried you might say something stupid and and people are going to judge you. Well, the consequences of that particular anxiety showing up aren't that high, right? You either go to the party or you don't. But when you have financial anxiety, those can be really dire consequences because if you're really scared that you're going to, you know, manage your money poorly so you don't look into your retirement at all, you could miss out on years and years of potential compound interest. The same thing goes if you're like, oh, I have a credit card. I'm just always going to have that debt. It's out of my league. I don't know how to manage it. Whatever. You can also be kind of getting yourself into more and more debt just because you're not paying more than those minimums. So the consequences for financial anxiety have really long lasting potential consequences or outcomes rather, but it doesn't mean we can't do something about it. For sure. I love how you said that because I think like when I'm out in the community and I'm working with different groups or our youth, you know, I think the word budgeting or spending plans, they get this negative stigma Mm. all around them. And I always try to spin it in a way of like, it's really, it's about empowering. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not restricting us on our spending and what we're doing. It's about empowering us to be able to spend our money the way we want, kind of having that that control and that balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Jess, I think you're so right. And I love how you said budget or spending plan. For me personally, I prefer spending plan because for me, budget sounds restrictive and judgmental and like I can't do anything in spending plan, even though it's the exact same thing, right? For whatever reason, that phrase feels much more empowering, right? I feel like, oh, I'm in control of where my money goes. I make the decisions. Everything is pre-planned. It feels proactive instead of reactive. 
So I also invite clients to kind of rename things as needed so it feels better for them. Just because somebody uses the term budget doesn't mean you have to. As long as you know what that definition is, you can call it whatever you want. Same thing with like an emergency fund. Some of my clients don't like that term and they call it a life happens fund or they call it a rainy day fund. It's like whatever you need to name it so it feels better for you by all means. Same thing with like retirement. A lot of clients are like, oh, it feels like, oh, I have to be thinking about like not working or it makes me think about getting older and I don't really like it. And I'm like, well, maybe think it about it as a when I don't have to work to earn money plan. Like what would you do if you had the amount of money you are earning right now coming in, but you didn't have to be working for it? And it's like, oh, that sounds kind of nice. Sign me up. I want to learn more. Absolutely. I definitely can identify with that. I am that type of person that's like, okay, how can I reword this or restructure this? Um, So it feels good. And I think it's important that people know that because money does just have that stigma, but at the actuality, the reality is it of it all is that it makes the world go round. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we all have to interact with it. Right. There's, Mm -hmm. there's not one adult in the U S that doesn't have to earn or spend or loan or lend their money. Even if they aren't working, let's say they're on disability or they're they're on social security, they still have to manage those funds and plan ahead. So it's something that touches every aspect of our lives and is intersected with why we do the work we do or where we live or how many children we have or don't have or whether we own or rent. Like all of those decisions are intertwined with our finances. And You can be angry about the state of money, which is fair. I get it. And at the same time, it's about how can you have control within a system that has a lot of flaws and cultivating a healthy relationship with money helps you to do that. I love how you say that because it got me thinking about, you know, how do people work at maybe they come from a background of not having an understanding of money or maybe generational poverty or just all of those things, what would you recommend to somebody who's interested in learning about empowering themselves on their finances, looking to maybe break some of those cycles? Mm -hmm. I think about it like my son, we always want better for our children. You know, it's like, so I'm thinking about now, how can I make a difference to impact him to teach all of these things I didn't Mm -hmm. know? What would you tell our listeners? Because I know There's not just me that's thinking about that in the world. Yeah, so it's such a great question. And it's so true that so many of us have money stories. And what you're talking about specifically is like financial trauma, right? Growing up in a household where maybe uh, money is really tight or where you had to worry about whether or not bills could be paid. There are a lot of different reasons why money could be traumatic for people. And I don't say that lightly. It's it's a very real thing and it can make it really hard to engage with some of these systems. You know, we've, you know, the three of us sitting here are, are, are women and we couldn't have access to things like a bank account or credit card until the 60s or 70s without our husband or father signing on the dotted line saying it was okay. When you think about people of color, they also had restricted access to things like housing that helps to build generational wealth. So there are very real system restrictions and very real financial traumas that each of us face in different ways. So when it comes to how do we change it, I think first it can be helpful just to acknowledge how that trauma is showing up in terms of your financial behavior. So for a lot of my clients who have maybe come from a household where it was hard to make ends meet or where they always heard their parent or caregiver like saying like, oh, we can't afford that or always felt really tense around money, 
they may have developed a coping skill to kind of do the opposite of that. I'm gonna work really hard, I'm gonna side hustle, I'm gonna work a nine to five, and then I'm gonna door dash on the weekends, and I'm gonna pick up babysitting gigs, and I'm gonna walk dogs too, because I never wanna feel that way. And so they swing so much in the opposite direction that they're working all the time and they're burnt out, but they don't know why they're doing it. And so what I like to say to them, what we talk about in therapy is this idea of extending a life raft. So when we are struggling, we all use life rafts to keep us going. So if I'm really anxious, I might bite my nails as a way to cope with my anxiety. So instead of just saying, oh, stop biting your nails, you have to replace it with a different mm -hmm. habit. Otherwise, you don't have that life raft. So when it comes to a person who maybe is overworking, what we want to do is go, what is causing you to work so much? How much money do you actually need to thrive? And what could we do so that you could work and feel safe enough? And it's about acknowledging it makes sense why you're doing what you're doing and you're no longer in the same situation that your parent or caregiver was in. So how can you extend a new life raft to yourself? Maybe that overworking is, you know, a habit that has come, could be anxiety related and working helps uh, to serve as a distraction. Well, what other healthy distractions could we extend instead? Could it be maybe going for a walk or joining a trivia night with your friends at, you know, a local establishment? What are some different things we could do to extend a different type of life raft when we're dealing with financial traumas is what is the behavior and how can we acknowledge it and, and switch it up for something a little bit healthier? I really like that because I feel like when you can change your mindset into that way, you do have that sense of empowerment yeah. over the situation and over your feelings and then also just thinking too of, you know, these things take time and yes. you can acknowledge and say, it's okay that I messed up and I didn't stick with my plan. Let me try again. Yes. Yes. And that's a big thing that I, I see happen in my clients too, is that they read all of the books or listen to all the podcasts, which I do too. Like I get it. And then what happens is they try to change 12 things about their personal finances, right? They're like, well, I'm gonna stop doing takeout and I'm gonna walk to work all the time and I'm gonna DoorDash on the weekends and I'm gonna contribute to a Roth IRA. It's like, all those things are great. But when you try to do 10 or 12 new things at once, like you're bound to drop a, a couple of balls. So instead it's like, choose one new habit, start implementing it, allow yourself to make a mistake. Like if you are getting takeout four, five, six times a week and you wanna bring it to zero, that's gonna be a hard shift mm -hmm. versus okay, maybe I'll let myself do takeout on the weekends, do that for a month, see how it feels, notice how your bank account is different, and then see if that still works. Maybe going out to eat a few times a week isn't actually gonna sink your budget, but doing it every single day was. And that's the thing is, is planning for mistakes. Making mistakes is a part of habit change. It's a, it's a part of progress that we don't really acknowledge. And I even think of like a lot of the apps we use to track our progress. Um, I don't know if any of you are learning new languages, but I used Duolingo oh, for yeah. a little bit, right? Which was great. But like if I, I forgot a day, then my streak was gone. And I was like, man, that that is how we treat so many goals, right? You can do a new habit for 60 days, but if you miss the 61st day, then all, you got to start back over at zero. And it's like, no, you're starting back over with 60 days of a habit under your belt. You just missed a day. It's not the end of the world. I love that because I think it's a great segue for something we wanted to touch on because I feel like with what you were just sharing with us, it's kind of that segue into shame. Yes. And all of the financial shame that people carry around, mm -hmm. shame just in life. Mm -hmm. 
I'd like, you know, for our listeners, I'd like to know what are some good strategies for our listeners that are struggling with financial shame Mm. from those, you know, trying to break some of those old habits, trying Mm. to maybe bring in some new routines in their lives and changing some things up. And the people that maybe struggle with falling and then dusting themselves Mm. off and starting again without carrying that backpack of shame. Totally. I love that that metaphor of the backpack of shame because that's what shame does, right? Is it, it weighs us down. It holds us back. It makes us think we're worse than we are. And money shame comes up all the time. And just quickly to to differentiate between guilt and shame and why money shame can be so damaging is that guilt is external. I made a mistake or I had something bad happen to me where shame is internal. I am bad. And so when it comes to money, it becomes, oh, I'm bad with money. And when we make statements like that without separating it from who we are instead of like, oh, I made a mistake with money, we start to think like we're perpetually doomed to be terrible with money. So first with clients, I invite them to like take a step back and do just that. Instead of saying, I'm bad with money, it becomes, I made a mistake with money. I was 18, I I signed on the data line for a credit card, I didn't really get how it worked, and yeah, I'm in trouble now financially, but I can forgive my younger self for making that mistake. They they did the best they could with what they had, or I did the best I could with what I had at that point in time. And then it's also about education and making meaning of the mistake. So consuming a healthy amount of personal finance information is great. And then it's how are we going to change that? How are we going to make meaning of the mistake? So extending some compassion to yourself for having made a mistake and then moving forward and and moving forward specifically in community with others makes a difference. So not doing it by yourself. And when it comes to money stuff, it's like, wait, I'm supposed to talk to somebody about this? And the answer is a resounding yes. Whether it's a romantic partner, an old roommate, a parent, a sibling, it doesn't matter. But because so many of us think we're the only people to have credit card debt or the only people who couldn't stick to a budget or the only people who didn't open a a retirement account on time, whatever on time is relevant. But a lot of us think we're alone in making these mistakes. So talking to other people about it dials down that shame and helps us to see that we're we're not alone in this. Like we all experience money shame. I really like that you were saying that because the next question that I was thinking of is we've been talking a lot about reflecting on our own emotions with money and our habits with money. But to complicate that even more, mm-hmm. I feel like many people maybe constantly comparing themselves yes. to others. Yes. What are other people buying? What are people posting on social media? And how can we navigate having those conversations when that comparing is happening? Oh, that comparisonitis is so challenging and we all do it. And when it comes to money, it's even more complicated because we actually don't know anybody else's financial situation, right? They may post this amazing trip on Instagram, But you and I don't know if they paid cash for it. We don't know if they cashed in some credit card rewards for it. We don't know if they took out a personal loan. We don't know if they pulled from their retirement for it. We don't know if they got a tax refund. We have no clue. All we see is there's this fancy vacation. Oh, they must be better off than me. Or why am I not able to take that vacation? Or what's wrong with me that I can't do it? Instead of really having an idea of how people are financing different things in their lives. So one is just to acknowledge, like, to separate again who they are and who you are. And it's not about competing with anybody else. It's not about saying, I have this and they have that, so they're better than me. It's about saying like, wow, they went on a really lovely trip. And then checking in with those emotions. 
why is it bringing up jealousy in me? Is it because I've been working for five years and I thought by now I'd be able to afford it? Is it because I know that maybe they probably earn less than I do and and I'm trying to do the financially responsible thing and save up for it and I'm like mad that I'm doing the right thing but I don't get to take that trip? Like what is going on that's bringing up that feeling of frustration? And then how can you acknowledge it? Maybe it's like, you know, I've, I've been working on cutting, paying back my student loan debt. It's been really hard. I've been grinding at it for like four or five years. Yeah, it'd be nice to take that nice tropical vacation, but maybe I just need a long weekend somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you know, can I safely afford that? And will that give me the restoration that I need? So it's about acknowledging first that other people, we have no idea what their financial situation is, and then checking in with that emotion. Why is that emotion coming up? And are there things I can do to quiet it? And the other thing is like, Social media is is a dangerous beast, right? It's very much a two-sided coin where there are some amazing strengths where you can connect with other people who have similar values and similar ideas and find community that might be hard for you to find in other ways. And at the same time, there's a lot of comparison that goes on. And especially when it comes to finances, it can be really dangerous if you're struggling with low self-esteem or if you're paying off something in your personal finance world, it can be really, really hard. So I personally set boundaries on my Instagram. I set a timer on it and it literally will shut down when I've hit that amount of minutes. And I had to block Facebook. I literally deleted it from my phone, from my computer, and then I blocked it. And that has been the greatest thing. I blocked it February of 2021. So over a year now. And let me tell you, that was a gift for my mental health. So also like listen to yourself too when it comes to social media and comparison. Maybe TikTok is fine for you, but maybe Facebook is a bit triggering. So maybe just shut it down. Facebook makes me feel the same way. It almost drives me insane because yeah. I just, you look at all this stuff and it's just overwhelming mm-hmm. and it creates stress and anxiety and mm-hmm. different thoughts where you're just like, I think I just need to like rid that for a while, test that out, see how that feels, you know, or like, am I spending, and I know I'm sure everybody listening has been guilty of this, of how much time am I spending scrolling on that where I could be reading a book, Uh I could be doing a a workout, taking a walk, I could be, you know, doing, spending quality time Mm -hmm. with my family, anything Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yes. And before you came on, so I know We haven't really touched a whole lot on the book that you wrote, but Mm. the Financial Anxiety Solution, I did have the opportunity to read it. So I remember in the book, you talking too about like substituting out the things that aren't good coping. And we talked a little Mm -hmm. about the lifeboat, but then not letting that become something that's also unhealthy too. And I'm thinking of those listeners who might not know this yet, but I am a big Animal Crossing playing game and I love the financial (laughs) aspect of the game because I'm like, I can make so much money so quick and pay this house off. And when I was reading your book, I thought about that. I was like, okay, (laughs) boundaries, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what you're talking about is the difference between like a healthy distraction and procrastination, right? Yes. And the example I think I give in the book is is Netflix, right? Maybe watching a 20-minute show is a healthy distraction. It's a healthy coping skill. You give your brain a break. You're watching Friends for the umpteenth time. It just is like soothing. But what happens is then the next episode plays and the next episode plays and the next episode plays. And you're like, oh, I haven't done anything for two hours 
now maybe I'm procrastinating on whatever that financial task was that I was going to do. So yeah, giving yourself like a limit and a boundary also helps to keep it like, not that we have to earn treats, but it helps to keep it exciting in, in that type of a way of like, oh, I get to play my hour of Animal Crossing today. And like, isn't that fun for me? I think of right now, again, Wordle is really popular. I don't know if yes. you guys play. <laughs> yeah. So it's a game where you can only play once every 24 hours. And it's that same kind of thing where you look forward to it the next day after work. You're like, cool, I get to go play the Wordle today because you only get to do it once a day. It's like becomes a little bit more special. For sure. I also bought your book. I am at the beginning stages oh, of your book. Yes. Um, Amanda was able to start it before me. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. But I wanted... You to be able to tell our listeners a little bit about your book, because so far what I've worked through, I'm just like, wow. Oh, wow. I mean, even <laughs> being a financial educator, I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that in that yeah. way. And, you know, I'm, I try to live with the philosophy of like, you learn something new every day. Yeah. And I feel like just a little bit that I've read in your book, I, I'm just, it's helping me look through things in a different lens. Mm. Yeah. Thank, thanks for buying the book and talking about it. It's, it's really exciting. So the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, as the two of you know, is a workbook. I am more of an experiential learner or a visual learner. So while I love books and I love podcasts, for me to really implement something, I have to like write it down or see an example. So that's why I wanted the book to kind of do the same thing. So it is a book full of how our emotions and money are tied together and the different things that we do to either avoid engaging with those emotions or maybe trying to be like too good or too perfect when it comes to our money. So the book, I would say 90% of it is about our emotions and about 10% is about the, the how-to. I don't spend a ton of time on, on the budget or definitions or financial planning. It's really about, I think, the basics of personal finance and financial education are things that the more we expose ourselves to them, the more we'll learn and, and we're good. But the basics are kind of the same from, from place to place and from person to person. But it's about knowing your emotions and how is that getting in the way or helping you achieve your financial goals. So it's very heavy on exercises and worksheets and it helps you to kind of play around with, with what you need. So for example, if you're uh, procrastinator. There's a whole chapter on like how to cope with the financial procrastination. So it's it's a fun way, fun, I guess for me, a fun way to, to look at your emotions and money in a way that maybe we haven't before or you, have, you haven't done yet. Thank you. Yeah, I think we're similar in that aspect too. And I'm excited to, you know, go through it and work through it and then set it down and then years later try yes. it again and see and compare and see how I've changed because I think that's how we experience money and our we have financial journeys that we're always changing depending on where we're at in our lives. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I don't know if either of you felt this way, but Lindsay, I was one of those people that I worked hard, but I, I still had a side hustle, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was something I've just always known. I mean, even after I got married and was getting more stable mm -hmm. financially. And then when the pandemic hit, all of that stopped. Mm. So, you know, the side hustle that I had went away and it was like, my husband and I both were, we were getting ready to get married. Mm. So we were both kind of like working really hard to try to save extra money for the wedding and all of that. And when the pandemic hit, we both realized like, wow, 
we're good. Like we don't necessarily need those. And it was a nice realization to be able to say, wow, like we can just spend more time together as a family, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, working so hard. But I don't want to give away too many spoilers about your book, (laughs) but where can our listeners get your book if they are interested in picking that up? Oh, such a good question. So I recommend calling your community bookstore, the fav- your, whatever your favorite one is. I think when I say that people are like, oh, I know which one I like to go to and call them and have them order it. And the reason I say that is that it's distributed by Simon & Schuster. So any kind of community bookstore can order it for you. And that way your dollars are staying in the community. My, my cut is the same, whether you buy it on Amazon or whether you buy it at the local bookstore. So I would much rather have you kind of keep those dollars in your community. I mean, of course you could buy it on Amazon if you wanted, but but call your local bookstore up first. Awesome. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, One more thing before we kind of switch off of your book. One of my favorite chapters and was very eye-opening to me was talking about aligning your values with your money. And so tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So values-based spending or saving or investing is exactly what it sounds like, but it definitely warrants an explanation. So we all know we have different values. We know the different things that are important to us and important to our families. But what we don't often think about when it comes to money is, am I spending in alignment with my values? Because so often we adapt a budget that is kind of cut and paste, right? It's like you should spend 20% on housing and 30% on, you know, utilities, or I'm making these numbers up, obviously, but, (laughs) but you're trying to adopt somebody else's values into your values and into your lifestyles needs. So I love doing the values-based spending where you kind of go through different life domains and figure out what's important to me. Is community important to me? Is family important to me? Is entrepreneurship important to me? Um, Is leisure time important to me? What are some of the things that are of value to you? And when you have extra money coming in, how can you make sure that you're spending those dollars in a way that best align with your values? So for example, a lot of my friends are really good at taking like those long weekends that I mentioned earlier as ways to practice self-care. But I've learned for me, I like to do what I call slow travel, which is where I stay somewhere for like a week or 10 days and I really get to know an area and I really feel like I can actually unpack my bag and enjoy the scenery. When it comes to three days, for me, I feel really rushed and I end up feeling really tired when I come home. My energy just doesn't work that way. So for me, when I'm thinking about spending on a vacation, I need to make sure that that vacation will check the box of those values of sustainability, of relaxation, of leisure, of getting to know a community. And that's how I can make sure that if I'm saving up for something fun like that, like that type of spending is in alignment with my values. Now, of course, not all of our spending can be in alignment with our Mm -hmm. values. We have to pay for things like gas and electricity and water. And those things might be like, it would be really great if it was more sustainable or whatever. But there are certain things we, we can't turn off that spending. So that's why I say when possible, spend in alignment with your values. I'm excited to read that chapter. I was almost going to ask about it, but then I didn't want to give too much away, but I'm glad you brought it up, Amanda, because I think it's so important because I think a lot of times people just end up on autopilot. Bills come in, they pay them, they go to work, they make the money. It's on autopilot. It's Mm -hmm. not, there's not much intention about it. And I think when you take the time to think about your values and is it aligning with your spending Mm -hmm. um, or your saving, 
or just the decisions that you're making. Yeah. You bring so much to light. Yeah. And it makes it so much more manageable to stick to something. Like if you're tweaking your, your budget or your spending plan, you're more likely to stick to it if you really believe in it, right? If you're like, I just need to cut everything down by 15%. If you don't have a why behind it, it's going to be really hard to make that change versus if you're like, I need to cut back on this particular area so I can save that money for, you know, I keep going back to vacations, I think, because we're in quarantine times and I'm like emerging. Um, But if you're saving up maybe for a car that has better gas mileage or is is that a, a bit newer, that is going to be much more exciting for you. Yeah, I agree. I think it brings that excitement to creating your spending plan and in the little bit of time that I've been thinking more about, okay, how can I shift where my money's going to match my values? It just feels a lot more intentional. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like I've always kind of been taught and I grew up in the idea of like pinching pennies. So now when I'm spending money and maybe I am spending a little bit more Mm -hmm. because it aligns with my values, I don't have that shame with it. Oh, so (laughs) such a good example, Amanda. I love that. And it's so true, right? We I think a value instilled in a lot of people is save, 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 but we don't know why. And so then we can feel badly. I've had clients in the past who are like, I want to spend more on groceries that are local or that are organic or whatever, but I have this voice in my head that's telling me like, but you could get it cheaper, you know, at at the, not the dollar store, but you know, at at a discount grocer. And it's like, yeah, but if you really value health and sustainability in your community, then spending a few extra dollars on food that meets that criteria that's in alignment with your values will will make more sense. So I really appreciate that example about like, yeah, if I spend my dollars in this way, it feels better for me. For sure. Because even just that little bit more of going down to the local market mm-hmm. or the farmer's market yes. mm-hmm. to buy your fresh fruits and vegetables, even if you do spend a little bit more, it's like, well, I've done worse with $20 yes, before, exactly, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so true. So true. Is there anything that you want to share that we that we didn't touch on today Ooh, good that question. might be important to our listeners? Yeah. So I think we've spent a lot of time talking about folks who are maybe overcoming, like getting out of a financial hardships. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that you can experience financial anxiety even when you're financially stable, kind of just like you were mentioning, like, oh, my partner and I were working all the time, even though we realized it was just a habit. So acknowledging that financial anxiety can happen regardless of your income or net worth, and there are things that you can do to dial it down. And of course, if you are struggling to make ends meet, Getting in touch with your emotions is helpful, but getting on strong financial footing will make the type of work that we do in my my book or with a therapist or financial therapist much more meaningful. Like we do have to take care of ourselves financially for some of this stuff to really be able to sink in. For sure. And I I think circling back and continuously touching, you know, on those things, again, I feel spending plans, I feel money, emotions, all of that. It's not just a one and done. Right. We have to continuously check back in with ourselves, reevaluate things, Mm -hmm. change things, because things are forever changing. Yep, exactly. And I think about, you know, I'm, I'm a person who's very open that I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. And I probably will be in and out of therapy my whole life because our life circumstances change, our coping skills that maybe used to work might not be so readily available to us. And it's the same thing exactly like you're saying with your money. A financial plan that worked for you five years ago might 
probably definitely needs a lot of new attention. And that's why I'm a fan of doing money dates, whether you're single or partnered. And that's checking in on your money at a regular interval, whether it's weekly, monthly, quarterly, it doesn't matter. But just having an idea of what's going on and, and asking yourself, does this work for me? But also, does it still feel good for me? And those are two things. The, the dollars and cents side is very important, of course, but also checking in and going, does this feel in alignment with what, what I need? Is this helping with my financial anxiety or is it making it worse? Maybe I thought I could save $100 a month, but it's making me feel really anxious. Maybe I need to dial it back to $75 a month. And there's nothing wrong with that. But having those regular check-ins is super, super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Amanda and I did a podcast earlier this season about kind of like a financial wellness day. So yes. not like your like your weekly, monthly check-ins, mm-hmm. but maybe something like once a quarter yes. or, you know, once every six months and really like evaluating like how much are you spending in subscriptions? Do you use mm-hmm. all of them? You know, mm-hmm. what are your credit card interest rates at? You know, yes. all of those kind of things because just, I think it's just as important as a mental health day. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we all just need that day to rest, rejuvenate, mm-hmm. collect our thoughts, collect our, our mind, you know, yeah. all of that. Or I feel like it's a kind of the same thing with our finances. It's not maybe one of those money dates where we're checking in once a week or once a payday mm-hmm. or, but being able to set aside that time yes. that is dedicated just to that, not a, hey, as I'm walking out of the mm-hmm. house, we need to talk about that bill that came in the yes. mail today, you know? yes. Um, yes. but actually dedicating it. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask you about, and this may fall more on like the therapy side, not the yeah. financial therapy side, but how important is it, especially when we're talking about finances, to have these conversations with our partners or our roommates in person and not via text or via email? (laughs) Such a good question. So in general, I'll talk about romantic partners first and then friends. So with romantic partners, couples who talk about money regularly actually report being happier than those that don't. And when it comes to what causes are cited for divorce and separation, the top two are always infidelity and arguments about money. And they, they shift spot one and two, depending on the year, depending on the study. But not talking about money is incredibly detrimental. And I love doing a text as a heads up to say like, hey, babe, we need to talk about money sometime this weekend to give your partner like an idea of what's happening. But these are conversations that have to happen in person. Or if, you know, you have a partner who's stationed abroad or or is working or living somewhere else, do it over the phone. We need, we need that vocal connection, or if you're sign, signing, we need to have that Zoom connection. It needs to, you need to be able to see your, your partner, or you need to be able to see your partner's face or hear your partner's tone. And when you can do it in person, that is so much better. When it comes to friends and roommates, that gets really tricky. And I think we're so used to just texting everything. I mean, I can't even tell you the last time I rung a doorbell, right? Because I just text like, (laughs) hey, I'm here. Like, I don't even knock on a door anymore when I get to a friend's house. So kind of the same things would stand with a roommate. You could give them a text to say, hey, you know, I noticed your rent was late. Can we talk about it on Friday? Or, you know, I know we're driving to class the same day. Can we spend a couple minutes making sure that, like, you actually then leave for that grocery money? So having those conversations is huge. Plus, like, we just misread texts all Mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, I know we're all nodding. (laughs) Yes, where you can have a text conversation with somebody and you're reading it 
as like really cold and abrasive and they are sending it with a ton of empathy and compassion, but that gets lost. That gets lost in an email, gets lost in text. So I would say when possible, do it that way. Now on the flip side, if you're very anxious or if you're neurodiverse, like you have autism or ADHD, it could be beneficial to do an email. But again, let that person know, I'm going to be sending you an email about what's going on. This is the way that I communicate best. FYI, I'm gonna send it on Friday or FYI, I sent it to you. Please read it when you actually have time. So, so there's no one right or wrong way. You know yourself, you know your partner, you know your friend best, but, but do what is, is most in alignment with you. Even though I have a preference for phone or email, listen to your body, you know your brain better than I do. And, and if an email or a text works best, that's fine. Just give your friend or partner a heads up that it's coming. I love that. I think that's so important. I think that's really great advice too for conversations that don't surround money, like yes. important, tough conversations that you want to have. Yes. I like that. Giving them the heads up and this needs to be done the way that makes sense for the relationship that you have with that person. Yeah, for sure. Because I think it takes, it gives you the opportunity to kind of put it out there to say like, hey, I'd like to talk about these things yes. and gives them that, that minute to really kind of think, okay, and maybe collect their thoughts yep. or think about their responses to kind of create a more constructive in a good way conversation mm -hmm. instead of a conflict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to these conversations, they are difficult. They can be awkward. I am not denying that at all. So it's also about knowing your limit and whomever you're talking to's limits. So if you start to feel yourself, like for me, when I am not being my best version of myself in a conversation, I get really snappy or my responses become like one-worded, fine, sure, okay, yeah. That's a sign for me that I need to take a break. Mm -hmm. And I can literally say to my partner, you know what? Let me just go take the dog around a block. Like I've done that before and been like, I will come back. I just literally need five minutes to just cool my head and then I'll be okay. And there are other times where I'm like, we have to table this. Let's talk about it tomorrow. I'm not saying we can't talk about it, but I can just feel my emotions getting the best of me. And I'm going to honor those emotions, but I'm not going to take them out on you, right? And so also knowing your limit or your partner's limit and saying, we'll revisit this. And that's, again, the importance of having these conversations is if you're having them regularly, there will be a regular time to revisit it. But if you're only having them when something is wrong, then you're setting yourself up to, to have a lot of really tough money conversations. I think it's what you touched on earlier about being yeah. proactive instead of reactive. Yes, exactly. Sure. Mm -hmm. So much good stuff. Lindsay, I did want to give you an opportunity if you wanted to share with our listeners about the podcast that you have or any upcoming workshops that you might be giving to individuals in Michigan or virtual ones. So then you have the floor for the last minute here. Oh, I love that. So my, my financial therapy practice is full, which is a great problem to have. But because of that, I'm going to be rolling out some more workshops and potentially courses. Some are for individuals, some are for couples. Because I'm a therapist, I also have some geared directly at therapists. I just did one on therapists and retirement and brought in a personal finance expert to help me kind of co-lead that. So you can check out my website. Everything is under the same name, Mind Money Balance, whether it's my podcast, my website, Instagram. When it comes to my podcast, I do everything in themes. So every single month, there's a different theme. So you can kind of tune in and tune out as the, the topics resonate for you or apply to you or don't, right? And you can kind of pop in and pop out and, and listen when it suits you. 
Awesome. Um, can we find your podcast just on your website? Or are there any other places we can find your podcast? <laughs> good, good plug. <laughs> um, no. You can find your podcast uh, wherever you would like to listen to it. If you are more of a reader, all of my podcasts are transcribed and there's like a corresponding blog. So if you're not a podcast listener, you can still go to my website, mindmoneybalance.com slash podcast. And all of the podcast episodes will be there and they'll be transcribed and and summarized if you're more of a reader. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. We are so grateful that you came to be on our podcast today. This is so impactful. I know I'm walking away (laughs) um, with a lot of takeaways. Yes, I would agree with everything that Jess said for sure. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming and joining us on Watt Watch today. Oh my gosh, it was so fun anytime, truly. It was such a pleasure chatting with both of you. And now it's time for the CU Spotlight. At MSU Federal Credit Union and OU Credit Union, we are always looking for ways to educate individuals on the importance of smart money management. WalletWatch is one of the great ways that we are able to do that. But we also have additional resources that you are able to utilize for free. Financial 4.0 is a free app and website that offers users access to their own personalized budget tracker, financial quizzes, published articles, weekly tips, and so much more. It's a fun and interactive way to learn about money and take control of your finances. If you are interested in learning more, visit www.financial40.org or find us in your app store by searching Financial 4.0 for MSU or Financial 4.0 for OU. Wallet Watch is written, hosted, and produced by Amanda Khan and me, Jessica Rubio. Our executive producers are Ariana Saldana and Lauren Kolarczyk. Wallet Watch is brought to you by MSU Federal Credit Union and OU Credit Union. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our credit union's website, financial40.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in our next episode.